Well, good morning, church. It is great to see you. We are in our summer series called Miracles. And every week we're looking at a miracle out of the Old Testament or the New Testament. And we're asking ourselves, first of all, what does God want to speak into us from this miracle? And then what can we learn about God's faithfulness or God's grace or God's forgiveness or God's justice and challenge ourselves to take deeper steps of faith? So we're jumping in today. Grab your copy of God's Word. Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to live. Daniel is in the Old Testament. It's about 80% of the way through the Old Testament. Scripture has Old Testament, which is creation to the time before Christ. New Testament is the birth and life of Christ through the beginning of the early church. So Old Testament, about 80%. If you're in Psalms or Proverbs, keep going. If you get all the way to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, go back the other way, okay? All right, so Daniel chapter 3. Hey, uh, I believe you are here not so much because you got up, grabbed a big carafe of coffee, drank it, and then grabbed a second one. I believe you're here because God wants to speak to you today. I believe as God's sons and daughters, he brought you into this place because he wants to speak something into your life. Maybe it's hope. Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's courage. Maybe it's grace in what you're walking through. But I don't believe you're here by accident. And so before we even start our service in the teaching part, I want to ask God, will you, will you speak into each one of us today and challenge us? So pray with me. Father, as your sons and daughters, we are in your house wanting to hear from you. So we take the busyness that was our week, the craziness that was our day, maybe even getting ready to come to church. Uh, and Father, we ask you just to set that aside in our hearts. We ask you that we would be men and women who would listen, not just to your word, but to the prompting of your Holy Spirit. That you would challenge us in those areas where we need to be growth, grown and stretched that you would speak hope into those places where we desperately need it and that you would encourage our hearts today with what is shared. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So in every culture, there are moments in human history when men and women step up and say no to tyranny. They stand in the gap for others who can't stand for themselves and they say, uh, we will not allow that to happen. And you and I gain courage from their courage. Now, part of what makes the Marvel movie franchise so much fun is we see men and women do the impossible stuff. Any, uh, super, not Superman's not Marvel, is it? Captain America, yeah, Iron Man, any, okay, yes. We love those stories because they're about men and women who stand up in the face of impossible odds and do extraordinary things to protect the rest of humanity. Well, all through human history, we see moments where real men and women stepped up and did that exact thing. Now, I've told you guys before, I'm British. I was born in England, lived there four years. I'm sorry that there is no cool accent. That would be awesome. Well, hello, welcome to new life. But when I, when I try it, it comes out sounding Australian. And it's more like, this is my dingo. You know, it's like... Dingo's a dog, little, yeah. So I, I don't even try anymore. But in England, I was raised around a lot of those historic men and women characters who stepped in and did extraordinary things. And one of my favorites was the prime minister during the Second World War. His name was Winston Churchill. 
And Winston Churchill was one of those galvanizing personalities in British history that really brought the nation together in desperate, in desperate moments and times. So May of 1940, the Nazi troops had invaded France and there was about 400,000 allied troops, French, English, Belgium, that had rallied around to protect France and the, Na the Nazis just overran the entire country of France and beat back those 400,000 troops to the point that all of them ended up in a little tiny town, French town on the coast called Dunkirk. And a movie came out recently. If you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to go watch. It's a phenomenal movie. And it's about those couple of days in human history when 400,000 men were driven into this little coastal town. Now, what happened is the British Navy had been decimated by the German Air Force. And they knew that they needed to get their troops from France across into England, but they didn't have the ships to do that. And so Winston Churchill got on and, and asked the British people, will you step up in this moment? And it was called Operation Dynamo. And he asked civilian boat, boat owners, both fishermen and whether you had a rowboat or any sailboat, any of those things, will you cross the British Channel and will you help us bring our 400,000 troops home? And so between May 26th and June 4th of 1940, 998 separate ships and individuals went back and forth across the English Channel and they rescued 338,226 troops off the beach at Dunkirk. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, I'd encourage you to run it this afternoon. It's incredibly powerful. And so on June 4th of 1940, Winston Churchill addressed the nation of England and the British Parliament, and he geared them up for the war that was still to come. Now, growing up as a little guy, my mom and my dad and my grandma would, would often say the words that Winston Churchill did. So for me as a British person, this has deep kind of meaning, and I will not try to imitate uh, too much Winston Churchill, but he had kind of this gravelly tone, and he came on the radio and he said, uh, we will fight them in the beaches, and we will fight them in the hills, in the towns, and on the landing strips. And then I'm going to do it because it's a whole lot of fun. He goes, and we will never surrender. You're like, yeah, you know. But understand, this is a point in English history when they were absolutely decimated. They just thought they'd lost their entire fighting force. The Germans were about to come and overwhelm the little island nation of England. And God used Winston Churchill to rally the nation of England. And so they put up a tremendous fight. And ultimately, it turned the war. We're going to look today at the story of three men in the scripture who stood up with tremendous courage in the face of tyranny and said, we will not bow the knee. We will not bypass our faith. So if you got your copy of God's Word, Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to jump in. Let me give you a little context, okay? Daniel is the story of four boys who were Jewish princes that were captured by the world superpower of that day, which is Babylon. And the king of Babylon is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And so in about 1600 BC, Nebuchadnezzar invades the kingdom of Judah, destroys the city of Jerusalem, grabs these four boys along with others, takes them back as captives to Babylon. And then the best of these boys, these four are part of that, were selected to ultimately serve the king. And so in Daniel chapter 1, you have this amazing story of the boys being captured, taken back to Babylon, and they meet their first true test of faith. They're fed this food at the king's table that's been sacrificed to idols. And they, as good Jewish boys, said, we can't eat this food. 
This has been given to a foreign God. We don't believe that. We can't touch this. We can't eat it. And so they were told, you will either eat it or you're, you're done, basically. And so they said to the captain of the guard, will you give us 10 days to just eat vegetables and drink water? Now, if you're a vegetarian, that's your scripture to stand on. Okay, it worked for Daniel. It's in the Bible. It, it worked for me. Good luck with that. So... So Daniel and his four friends for 10 days just eat vegetables and drink water. And at the end of those 10 days, they're tested. And they ultimately come out sharper, smarter, faster, bigger, stronger than anybody else. And so they're allowed to do that. But that's a first test of faith. And then in Daniel chapter 2, you hear this next story, which is even crazier. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And in that dream, it totally freaks him out. So he pulls all his wise men together and he says, hey, hey, guys, come here, come here, come here. I had this really crazy dream last night. You ever done that? You ever had a really crazy dream and you want to figure out what, what in the world does this mean? Okay, don't read any psychology books because it will really screw you up. But Nebuchadnezzar, he calls everybody together and he says, hey, I want you to tell me what this dream means. And his wise men say, okay, logically, just tell us what you dreamt. And he goes, nope, not doing that. You have to tell me what I dreamt and what it means. So the wise men look and go, he's gotten crazy. So they go, nobody can do that, right? Nobody can tell you what you dreamed and then explain it to you. The king gets mad and he goes, well, if you don't tell me what I dreamed, I'm going to kill all of you. Well, then he goes out to kill everybody. And so the guards are on their way to kill Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when the guard gets there, Daniel says to them, hey, what, why are you, what's going on? And they say, well, the king has said this thing. And so Daniel very wisely says, will you ask the king to wait overnight and give me a chance to pray to my God? So in chapter 2 of Daniel, what you find is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pray to God. And God not only reveals what the king dreamt, but what it actually means. So he goes in the morning to the king and he says, this is what this dream was and this is what it means. And at the end of chapter 2, you find where Daniel and his three friends all of a sudden become four of the most powerful guys in the nation of Babylon. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, recognizes Daniel's God. He says, there is no other God like your God. We're going to pick up in chapter 3, about 15, 19 years or so of human history has gone by. And so Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel now serve in the nation of Babylon as some of the top advisors in the entire nation. Where we pick up in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is an egomaniac, has gotten away from God as the greatest to Nebuchadnezzar as the greatest. Anybody know a narcissist? Okay. That was not a response question, people. So, some of you were like, oh, yeah. And some of you were nudging. Don't nudge in church. <laughs> okay. But we, we all know narcissists, right? Narcissists are those people that love themselves so much they're better than everybody else. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was a narcissist. And he was such a narcissist that at the end of chapter 2, he acknowledges God and God's power. And literally a verse later, but about 15 to 19 years later, he's setting up a gold statue to himself 90 feet tall. I, I expected better response. 90 feet tall. Wow, thank you, yes. So 90 feet, for example, this building, if you know outside, you walk up to it, is 52 feet at the highest. So double, almost double the height of this building. Is that a little ego problem? Yeah, okay. So 90 feet tall, nine feet wide, and to top it off, it's covered in pure gold. Not flashy, just classy, right? So 90 feet tall, and he says, he makes this declaration beginning in chapter 3 that every nation, every tribe, every people, all the leadership has to come down and bow down and worship this statue. 
Well, Daniel and his, four, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've been for the last 15, 20 or so years, they've been in the kingdom with Nebuchadnezzar. They're Jews. They're not going to do that. So we're, we're going to pick up in the story. What's happened is some guys who don't like them in the kingdom have gone to Nebuchadnezzar and said, hey, um, everybody else is doing this thing you're asking except these guys. And there's three of them mentioned, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now they're renamed, okay, and we'll see that in just a minute. Um, but they're renamed, but Daniel is not in this story. We're not totally sure why. He was probably off somewhere else in the kingdom. But the story where we're going to pick up is these, these guys have basically said to the king, hey, listen, um, these guys aren't bowing. And so the king, in typical form, gets mad again. And we're going to pick up in chapter 3. So look at verse 16. He says to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or, or they reply to the king after he tells them, he says, you've got an option here, okay? He calls them in and he says, hey, look, here's the deal. You guys either bow the knee or burn. Now, you ever put your hand on a hot plate? You ever done that as a little kid? Mom says, don't do it. And you're like, I can do this. And so you do it, hurts, right? Okay. Well, the king has said to them, if you do not bow the knee, you're going to burn in a furnace, so that's their options, bow the knee or burn. And I want you to watch how they respond. Because I want you to think for just a moment about what their life would have been like for the last 20 or so years. Captured as young teenagers, forced to serve in a foreign country, studied a different religious system, a different language, multiple times over again, they're told either you will deny your faith or walk away from your faith, or you will be killed, and God supernaturally steps in. You imagine, church, how easy it would have been in that moment for those three guys to compromise. God understands. We need to live. We got families. We got young children. It's just bowing the knee. I mean, it's not a big deal, right? Compromise, you guys, is never radical. It's two, three, four, five degrees. It's that conversation you keep having with that lady at work who's not your wife and it's getting further and further down the road and you think about her more than you think about your bride. Compromise is that moment where you're looking at your taxes going, you know, honey, if we add this extra income in here, we're going to owe. You don't want to do that. Government just, they don't need to know that. That's our money. It's that moment when you uh, know you should do the right thing but doing the right thing is going to cost you. And so it's so much easier just to fudge the line just a little bit. You hear me, church? That's compromise. It would have been so easy for these three young men in that moment to go, God will understand. We'll just bend the knee. But I want you to see how they respond. Look at verse 16. The king says, your options are bow or burn. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves to you in this matter. Now, before we think that these guys are getting cocky, this is not cocky. A, a better way to understand this would basically have been to say, hey, you've made up your mind and we've made up our mind. Neither one of us is going to change. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. And catch verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold you've set up. Now, if you're following along in your notes, I want you to write this down. I must obey God above all others. I must obey God above all others. 
Now, I want to talk about something for a few minutes, and I want you to hang in there with me because some of you are going to get mad at me in about eight seconds, okay? So hang with me, and let me walk through this process with you, okay? I want to talk to you about civil disobedience for the purpose of biblical obedience. Not civil disobedience to create a problem, but civil disobedience, which is where you and I intentionally go against the law of man for the purpose of obeying the law of God. Now, we live in a culture that we know is becoming increasingly anti-God, anti-Christian, and anti-Christian values. And so as men and women of faith, we need to know when is it okay biblically to stand up against that and say we will not do that. Now in the scripture, the hard part of that is that there's actually a tension because the scripture seems to teach two completely different ideas. It seems to teach civil obedience on the one hand and civil disobedience on the other hand, like in this case. The king said to them, bow or burn? And they said, no. So how do we process that as men and women of faith? Well, grab your copy of God's word and flip over to Romans chapter 13. So Romans chapter 13 is a book written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome at that time was in the city that was one of the most decadent and disgusting cities in the world. What went on within that city, the violence, the ugliness, the sexual distortion, everything that was a part of that city, way worse than what is occurring in our culture at this time. And into that moment, this is what the Apostle Paul writes to the church. Romans 13 verse 1, everyone, say that word with me, everyone, who does that mean? That means all of us, right? Everyone must submit himself or herself to the governing authorities. It's hard to get around, isn't it? Everyone must submit himself or herself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, this is where it's going to hurt. He or she who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Some of us need to go home and change our Instagram post. <laughs> Facebook rants, right? So you read that and you go, okay, every government authority is established by God. Not if that government obeys God. But God literally has his hand on the governments of the world, and he's allowed them to be there. So it seems like when you and I rebel against the government, somehow we're going directly against the will of God. Well, how, do, how does that work out then? How does that balance? So also in Luke chapter 20, and you don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 20, there's this fantastic story where Jesus is asked the question, and they're trying to trap him by the religious leaders, and they say, hey, um, do we have to pay taxes to Caesar? And he gets a coin and he probably flips it up in the air, catches it and he says, um, whose face is on this coin? They say Caesar's. So his response is, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, right? And then in Matthew 17, 
his, his disciple, a guy named Peter, is kind of caught off guard by one of the temple guys who does the taxes for the Jewish nation. And he says, hey, Peter, doesn't your, doesn't your master pay the temple tax? And Peter goes, of course he does. So Jesus has this fun little conversation with Peter in Matthew 17 and then ultimately says to Peter, hey, go down the lake, throw a line in, catch a fish. When you open his mouth, the coin to pay the temple tax for you and me is in his mouth. How many of you would have been like, yeah, right, okay? (laughs) But it was. And so even in the example of Jesus, we see where the God of the universe is being obedient to the laws of man as it relates to taxes. So what does that mean for all of us who go, my taxes are way too high. And I know none of you ever say that, but right? (laughs) The reality of scripture, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But catch this. If we only looked at that passages like that, we miss the balance and the tension that is within the scripture. Because yes, the scripture does teach us to obey the governing authorities, but there are moments, and catch this, there are moments where civil disobedience is engaged for the purpose of biblical obedience. In Exodus chapter one, Pharaoh, who is the leader of the nation of Egypt, has the Israelites as slaves. And he starts realizing the population is getting bigger and bigger and he starts freaking out. So he calls the midwives, the Jewish midwives together and says, here's what I want you to do. Every time a male child is born, a male Israelite child is born, kill it. Kill that child because we don't want the population to grow. And in Exodus chapter one, you see the Jewish midwives doing a direct opposite of that command and not killing those Hebrew boys. And in verse 21 of Exodus chapter one, what happens is God blesses those midwives for being disobedient to the Pharaoh. This story in Daniel chapter three, you see the king going, bow or burn. They say, no, we're not gonna do that. Acts chapter 5, 25 to 28, you see the story of Peter and the apostles have been captured by the Jewish leaders and they're told very directly, do not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. You may not do that. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, they make this statement, we have to obey God and not man. So here's the trigger, church, okay? Please don't take this as a license to civil disobedience. Here's the only trigger in scripture when you and I can engage civil disobedience. It is when the law of man goes in direct opposition to the law of God. Did you catch that? So we can engage civil disobedience when the law of man goes in direct opposition to the law of God. And take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. And I want to show you the reason that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said we're not going to bow. So Exodus chapter 20 has the Ten Commandments in it. And I tell my son all the time, if you ever want to remember how the ten, where to find the Ten Commandments, Exodus is the second book and it's the 20th chapter. So if you take 20 and divide it by two, you get... Wow. All right, we're stopping right there. Um, Can I have a whiteboard and uh, (laughs) a... You take 20 and divide it by two, you get a little cheat, okay? The Ten Commandments are in Exodus 20, second book of the Bible, 20th chapter. Okay, so this is the reason why civil disobedience got engaged here. Here's what the scripture says, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself, an, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Why did they not bow? Because the rule of God supersedes the rule of man. That is where you and I can engage civil disobedience. Now catch this. This is not something that we, we get great at discerning the will of God in an instant. How do we get to the place where when somebody says to us, if you do, if you do not bow, you're going to lose your life. How do we get to that place of courage where those guys immediately respond, we will not do that? You got to engage in God's word, church. Every day, on a regular basis, you've got to get your head and your heart inside the scripture of God. And like Psalm chapter 1, you have to be like the person who is blessed by God, who is planted by streams of living water, and God's word lives inside of you. The only way you do that is consistently engage in the truth of God so that when culture comes against the truth of God's word, you can go, you know what? I have to obey God and not man in this instance consistently engage in the truth of God's word. And that's what begins to happen. God changes your heart and you just know, I'm following this line. I'm going this direction, okay? All right, let's keep going in the story. So go back to Daniel chapter three. So verse 17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond to the king and this is what they say. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, and there's three responses they give. Number one, if we're thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. Now that's a deep-seated core belief, church. That says that God is God over me. God is God over you. God is God over the furnace. God is God over the fire, and he can save us in that moment. Now, growing up in California or living in California, all of us know what happens with fire. Fire destroys everything it touches. So you imagine the core faith of these guys in that moment, that bold faith that says, I firmly believe that God can save us from that and even overcome the rules of nature. Now, if you got your notes, I want you to write this down. Bold faith is based in God's ability not in my desired result. Bold faith is based in God's ability and not in my desired result, okay? And what we see here in verse 17 is, they say, hey, listen, if you throw us into the fire, we have enough faith to believe that God can save us in that moment. And then he goes on, not only do we believe that God can save us, we believe that God will save us. Now, that can be a really cocky part. And years ago, there was this thing circulating in some churches, this idea of naming it and claiming it. You would find a belief in the scripture. You would put your hand on it. You'd raise your hand to heaven and say, God, you did it here. You have to do it for me now, okay? If you ever catch yourself doing that, back up, slap yourself in the side of the head, apologize to God and go, I'm never gonna do that again, okay? We don't, we don't dictate to God. So what's going on here when they say, I know God can, and I know God will. That's not a statement if we believe that God's gonna do it because we say it. That's a statement of absolute surrender. Catch the heart. God's gonna save us one way or the other. Either he's gonna save us in the fire and protect us, or we're gonna lose our life in the fire and God's gonna save us through taking us up to be with him. But either way, we know that God will do his perfect will. So Matthew chapter six, this is a prayer that many of us know. It's a prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples. It's called the Our Father by many of us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy 
name. And then what's the next part? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's God's will in heaven? What God says goes. So what are these guys saying? They're literally saying, God, however you choose to act in this moment, we're going to trust you. Whether you protect us in the fire or whether you take us to be with you, we're going to trust you in the moment. Now imagine, church, what life would look like for you and I if every challenge we faced, we engaged it through that lens. World starts falling apart, starting to lose the house, can't make the car payments, lost my job, marriage is on the rocks, having trouble with my kids. I know God can and I know God will and I'm going to trust Him. How different would you and I respond, church, if that was the basis of our faith response that says, I know God can change the heart of my spouse. I know God can change the heart of my kids. I know God can change my financial situation. And I know he will, but however he does, I'm going to trust him in that moment. Some of us would actually get some sleep at night. Right? Some of us would stop having that extra drink after work. Because we choose to live differently as people of bold faith. Just like these guys. I know God can and I know God will. Now, flip down to verse 18. Because this to me is one of the most challenging statements ever. He says, verse 18, but even if he does not, even if God doesn't save us, O king, we want you to know we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold you've set up. What if instead of getting mad at God for not doing what we want him to do, we live that way? Well, God, you didn't step in and, and save my finances even though I destroyed them myself and I'm, I'm mad at you so I'm walking away from my faith. Don't raise your hand. Some of us know people like that, right? God didn't do what I expected God to do, so now I'm angry and I'm walking away from God. What if we responded differently, church? What if we lived that even if you don't, God, I'm still gonna trust you. Even if you don't do the very thing that I'm praying for you to do, God, I don't dictate heaven, Heaven controls earth. It doesn't work. Earth doesn't dictate heaven. Heaven controls earth. God, even if you do not do it, I'm still going to trust you. Imagine what life would look like for us if we lived that way, church. I'm going to trust you, God, no matter what happens. Let down here work like up there works. Now, what stops us sometimes, church, from engaging that kind of faith is we live in a first world country. And sometimes American Christianity is about what can God do for me, right? American Christianity is, well, what can God do for me? I'm willing to serve him, but what can God do for me? Because I want God to fix my marriage, and I've been a jerk to my wife for 40 years, but I expect God to change that overnight. I expect God to fix my finances. I've been online gambling for 15 years and lost $70,000, but I know God's going to fix it overnight, Right? American Christianity oftentimes is about what can God do for me? And so sometimes even when we come in here and worship, we're like, yeah, I didn't like those songs. Guess what? It's not about you. <laughs> Turn to the person sitting next to you and encourage them deeply and go, it ain't about you. Do it. 
Oh, Pastor Brett, I feel so loved right now. I, I came to church and you just encouraged my heart. I want to thank you. Hey, church, it's not about us. Do you know why we come to worship? We come to worship because God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our worship. So you may sound like a four-cylinder that has three firing when you start singing. And everybody around you is going, oh my gosh, that's okay. God's worthy of your worship. American Christianity oftentimes is about what can God do for me. Here's biblical Christianity. How can my life honor God? That's it. How can my life honor God? So when those guys hit that and say, even if... God does not save us. We will not bow. See, biblical Christianity, church, is everything that you engage, no matter what is going on in your life, your question is not how can God bless me. Your question is how can I honor God? How can I live in such a way that God gets the honor and credit for how I engage in this moment? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, the apostle Paul is writing to the church, and he says, hey, people, you're created for God's glory. That's it. You're not created to find any other purpose in life. I'm going to save you guys two or $300,000 over your life. Stop buying the books to figure out why you're, what your purpose is. Your purpose is to honor God. You're welcome. That's it. Okay, we don't have to find our purpose. Our purpose is to honor God. So every day you wake up, the question before you roll out of bed is, God, will you show me how to honor you today? God, will you show me how to point people towards you today? God, will you teach me what it looks like to live in such a way that people pay attention to you and not to me? Your purpose is not about finding your best life ever. Your purpose is about how do you honor God in the moments and decisions of your day. Now, I want to jump back in the story. So look at verse 24. What happens right here should be like a blockbuster movie, okay? This should be one of those things where the big Hollywood producers come along and go, this is a great story. We want to play around with this. So verse 24, the king has said, bow or burn. And the guys have gone, we ain't bowing. So he superheats the furnace and he gets it so hot that even the guards who are throwing him in there get killed on the way to drop him into the fire. That's how hot it is. Now, these are not your everyday guards. They're not like ball cops, okay? This is the best and brightest. It says the strongest guys he has. So if you're in my generation, which is the gray hair generation, you're thinking Rambo, Okay, Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of in the Terminator, that, that, that's what you're thinking. If you're a younger generation, you're thinking Captain America, Iron Man, like these are the best of the best. Those guys die on the way to taking these three guys to the furnace. It's that hot. And we're going to pick up and see what happens in verse 24. The king Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four walking around in the fire. Now, before you bypass that, remember how hot your hand was on that hot plate? This is a miracle. This is a moment where God supernaturally steps into human history. And not only does he allow the guys to walk around unbound in the fire, he meets them in the fire. Here's what I want you to hear, church. When the heat gets turned up, that's where you and I see God most powerful. When the heat gets turned up in our life and the crisis is on, that's where we see God work the most powerful moments in our lives. So it says, weren't there three men in the fire that were tied up? Sure there were. Look, I see four walking around, verse 25, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like the Son of God. 
Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here. Can't you see this on the big screen? Like, that would be an insane movie. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and then the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and they didn't even smell like fire. Now, if you've ever been camping, you know that's an impossibility, <laughs> right? Because you start out smelling all pretty, all coloned up and everything else, and you go out in the woods, somebody lights a fire, and that smoke chases you all over the forest, okay? We all know that. These guys walked out, not even the smell of fire. Amazingly powerful. That's a drop-the-mic moment, right? If that had happened in our day, social media would be absolutely blown up, okay? It would break the internet. Hundreds of millions of hits all the time. These guys would be on TikTok. They'd be on Instagram. I mean, it would be craziness, right? Nighttime, hey, will you be a guest on our show? Will you please come? Will you tell us your story? Here's what I want you to catch. This is not about them. That miracle that God performed is not about them. It's not about them getting credit. They were obedient, but God was the one who did the miracle. So look what happens. Verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and they willingly gave up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree, and I would not suggest this as an evangelism strategy, okay? Just not a great one, but this was his. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into a pile of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. If you're writing your notes, I want you to write this down as the last one, okay? God receives honor when I live in obedience. God receives honor when I live in obedience. You and I serve the same God who was present with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this story. We serve the same God that still performs miracles. When God performs a miracle in your life, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about us living in such a way where the honor and the glory goes his direction, not ours. Biblical Christianity has never been about what can God do for me. Biblical Christianity is about how can I honor God in the moments of my life on a consistent basis. Church, let's be the kind of people that have that bold faith that says no matter what is going on in our culture, no matter what is going on in our family, no matter what's going on in this conversation, I am gonna obey God and be obedient to the teaching of scripture no matter what it costs me. Let's be those kind of people. Let's see what God can do through that kind of faith. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, the challenge that it puts into each one of our hearts. Pray a blessing over our church as they go this week and engage with the challenges that are part of each one of our lives. Pray that you would speak hope and truth and grace and courage into each one of us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, blessings, church, as you go. Don't forget to talk to Lee and Becky on your way out. Have a great week, everybody.